welcome to Always Take Notes. A message from our sponsor, Vitsu, Melvin's story. We love, love, love our Vitsu shelving. Build quality and ease of assembly is amazing, but it was your service that made the whole process such a joy. So said Melvin from Sydney in this heartfelt message to his Vitsu planner Sophie in London. Love is a word heard a lot at Vitsu. Other verbs just don't seem to cut it. As with any customer, Sophie considered every detail, so Melvin's bookshelves were perfect for his needs. Passionate about good service, she communicates with all her customers directly, wherever they are in the world. Whether in person or on the other side of the globe, Vitsu's planners hold your hand throughout the process, time and again proving that long-distance relationships really do work. Every interaction is handled with love from Vitsu. Vitsu's 606 Universal Shelving System is a modular, adaptable kit of parts. It can provide the perfect home for your books and even the desk from which to write one. Visit vitsu.com, that's V-I-T-S-O-E dot com, or request a free brochure via email at vitsu.com by quoting ATN 606. Vitsu, makers of long-living furniture by Dieter Rams. Hello, and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, we spoke to poet Holly McNish. We spoke to Holly about breaking onto the slam scene, about winning the Ted Hughes Award in 2017 for Nobody Told Me, and about dealing with hostile critics. It's a great episode. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Holly, to Always Take Notes. Thank you so much for making time in what sounds like a very busy touring schedule to speak to us. Could we start by talking about the difference between a poet and a spoken word artist? For listeners who might not be familiar with the distinction, you've been described as both, but what, as you see it, uh, differentiates the two? So I guess, I don't know if this is a very um, helpful answer to people. I feel like there's a difference that's sort of accentuated quite a lot by newspapers and stuff that doesn't really exist as much as we make out like it does. So I get called a spoken word artist quite a lot, and I guess, if there's a differentiation, it's that often a poet is thought of as someone that like crafts work for the page, I guess. And a spoken word artist is someone that crafts work specifically for it to be read aloud. But I feel like it's a sort of linear thing. So there are people that really do it for the kind of stage presence and they have, you know, call and response written into their poems, which is obviously intended for working with an audience. And... I guess like shape poems would be my example of someone that's really crafting it specifically for the page and that maybe doesn't work so well being read out. But I feel like most poets from, you know, most of history have been somewhere in between. Following on from that question from Rachel, could you tell us about your decision to start performing your own poetry? Is it right this was when you were 23 and it was your boyfriend at the time who encouraged you? What was that experience like? Terrifying, I think. <laughs> Remembering back, uh, it was it was pretty terrifying. And I, I did it. So it, I know lots of people say this, but I had, I had a job that I loved quite a lot at the time wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do forever and I'd just come out of um or at the time I was doing a master's in economics so it wasn't the poetry route that I was really looking for in life um but I was writing a lot and reading a lot and I used to read them out yeah to my to my ex to my daughter's dad 
quite a lot and he maybe in a supportive way maybe out of boredom of being the person that I kept reading my poems to my mum was the same she said oh why don't you read them out to somebody else because I've been reading them to her since I was about well, I guess little but since I was like teenager definitely um and it was more of a thing that I sort of wanted to prove that I could do it because I live well I live in a little village now I lived in villages most of my life really and I just I was writing so much and I had all these poems under my bed and I just I just wanted to sort of prove to myself that I that I could do it and then I couldn't and I chickened out quite a few times um, and then started writing terrible poems about how I couldn't even read the poems to other people um, so yeah then I went to poetry cafe in London basically and watched other people for a while and then after about a year I think read a poem out to other people for the first time not sure what the drive was, just just sort of to prove something to myself, I think. How did you get the feel for performing poetry? Was it by watching others do it? Or did you just kind of work out your own style once you were on stage? Yeah, I think a bit of both, probably. So it's watching other people do it and then taking advice and also ignoring advice. So, so I think I was really worried about how to do it because I had not gone to a poetry reading or anything like that before I went with the intention, I guess, of reading one of mine out and then just watched other people. Um, and then, I guess, over the years, over about four years, I reckon, it's taken for me to be, like, comfortable on stage reading them out. I'm still nervous, but I'm not, you know, terrified anymore. Um, I think the main thing was because I went into it, like like you said about poet and spoken word kind of thing, there was this differentiation kind of pushed on me a lot, even though I'd been writing poems onto paper, because I guess the first time I sort of shared it with other people wasn't sending it to magazines or trying to put it online, it was reading it out to other people. So I immediately was sort of labelled as a spoken word poet, which is fine, it's a very nice <laughs> label to have. Um, but I really hated reciting poems by heart, like I really hated that aspect of it. And it made me, the first tour that I did that was on my own, I, I I guess to be blunt about it, vomited before every single gig. Um, like until I was, yeah, I was just like not very, <laughs> I was healthy, but I was sick before every gig. But it was mainly because I was so worried about the um, off by heart recital aspect of it. I just wanted to hold a piece of paper, but I'd been told that like a spoken word poet doesn't do that. Like you're a spoken word artist, so you have to learn them off by heart. It's much better. It's less distracting for the audience. And I think it was about four years after reading a poem. And it was also having a kid that I thought, like, I cannot spend time learning these poems off by heart. I'm getting about four hours sleep a night. And in my head, I kind of made a decision thinking I'm either never going to read a poem to anyone else again because I'm just sick all the time when I do it, or I'm just going to, you know, read from a book and read from a piece of paper and ignore that side of the advice. So I think, yeah, I think there's watching people and and also, like, knowing yourself. Because a lot of people that went into spoken word that I met, they'd gone through it from a kind of drama route. Not everyone, a lot of them had gone through it from a literature route as well. But there was a lot of comfort on stage, I guess, which I didn't have, and a kind of which I love about people that are really right for the state, like a joy of performing, like really l- loving the interaction with audiences and stuff. And I um, I didn't really have that. I just liked reading poems. So I just wanted to read the, read the poems to other people without the 
horrendous nerves. And how did you get onto the competition circuit? And what was the impact of the competition that you won in, in 2009? How did that change things for you? Um, I guess it got you noticed a lot. So it was, um, it's, I guess, a kind of a lucky break, I would say. A lot of luck. I worked pretty hard as well, putting a lot of stuff up, recording albums and stuff and, and doing a lot of gigs. But the that I'd say that was luck, not to put myself down, really. But that was the fourth gig I think I ever did, the fourth reading I'd ever done. So I I did a first reading at like an open mic night in um Poetry Cafe in Covent Garden, which was a very nice group of people. I found the world of like people that are into poetry is a very supportive bunch. I've been told by a friend in London that is not the case and that I just don't see all the bitchiness between it. But I think personally it has been. Um so I did that and then from that gig or that reading or open mic um I got asked to if I would do like a slot at another poetry night called um Farago in London and I did that and it was a poetry slam which I'd never heard of and I honestly can't remember if if I came first second third or anything but it was one of those and then the next one I did again and then I think it was the next one that was like the UK slam which I won and then got to go to Paris to do the world poetry slam so I it had like a massive impact on me because I saw all these other poets from countries around the world that were also like competitively doing poetry I don't really like the competitive side of it I think poetry slams can be really exciting and they're really fun to watch but I I've only done about four in my life because I don't I don't, I don't know if it's great for the art form. I think it's great in terms of getting people, you know, going. But the idea of sort of standing on stage and you read the poem out and then somebody gives you like, you know, six out of ten or seven out of ten or whatever. I think it's quite daunting. So personally, I prefer the kind of open mics and readings and stuff. But I think poetry stamps can be really exciting also to go into. So I loved it. And I also at that world poetry slam, the thing that I loved the most was at one point lots of people went off to sort of go out, um, you know, to see Paris, obviously. Um, and I watched the eight to ten year old World Poetry Slam. No, the French, eight to ten year old French Poetry Slam. And that was amazing, just seeing all these kids like cheering on their friends, reading these poems that they've written themselves. Um, yeah, so it just opened up my eyes to this whole world of poetry that I just did not have a clue existed. So that was really, really exciting. And that, and it, you know, got me more gigs, which was equally helpful. Well, a perfect segue. Could we roll back to your your own sort of entry into poetry? Am I right in thinking you started writing rhymes at the age of four? I don't know. The first one's dated age seven, I think, that I'm about. So I wasn't writing loads and loads. I used to write loads, I reckon, from about 12. I wrote quite a lot of poems and a lot. I just loved them. And yeah, so when I was at uni, my mum found a poem that I'd written age seven. But I think a lot of kids, like, write poems when they're little. Um, But that was... It was a a poem about how much I hated my family, so it wasn't the best one for her to find. (laughs) It wasn't hate, it was, like, very angry about not being allowed a cat. And it was... I rhymed quite a lot of rude words with cat to, like, slag off my family. So my mum sent it to me at uni and said, oh, this is nice. Um, But, yeah, so that's about the age I've got 
these poems and then other ones about like litter picking and I used to draw pictures on all of them. I just loved it. I found it really freeing compared to writing prose and then just... Is it right, is it right that you wrote diaries in, in, in verse as well? Yeah, I've still got them. It's ridiculous to read back, like it is to read any diary really. So yeah, I wrote it's sort of diaries and scrapbooks and stuff and that was all in all in poems. Yeah. And it continued throughout your teen years, I think. I, I read in one interview that your poems of that age were mainly about sex and not getting into nightclubs. <laughs> I don't know, mainly. There were like three about that. But yeah, there was quite a few about whether I was comfortable having sex, not having sex. Um, there was also quite a lot about... It was I get, My mum found the book one day, I remember, and I'd written a poem about suicides and about um, all the characters in my head sort of dying away and the circus dying away. I think when I got that transition, when you sort of stop believing in things that you maybe believed in as a kid, so I, I used to write loads of sort of sad poems about that, and I think she was a bit worried about that. Um, and then just sort of joke poems. Or I wrote quite a lot about Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> that just general children's stuff about game shows I wrote a lot but yeah I used to I looked quite young when I was that age so I used to struggle to get into the clubs and I wrote a load of poems when at one point we used to have to get a bus to the local nightclub and if you didn't get in you basically just waited on stairs till your friends came out and the bus home was there so a couple of us were didn't get in and um I wrote loads of poems about how I sort of didn't care I wrote lots of poems I think reading back now to convince myself of feelings that actually weren't true. This poem was about how, yeah, I didn't want to get into the club anywhere. I preferred to, like, sit on the staircase, which is obviously a load of crap, but um, at the time it was very helpful. Were you reading poetry at this stage as well? Yeah, so, I, yeah, I um, I read a lot when I was a kid. I loved reading poetry as a kid up until, I'd say, about age 12. So I had lots of, not lots not lots. I had two anthologies, which I read about a hundred times. So I didn't have loads of poetry books. Um, Roger McGough, I had like a little collection of Roger McGough and Colin West books, which were sort of miniature books, which were always by my bed, which was like pie in the sky. And I had Please Mrs. Butler, which was my favourite, one of my favourite books. So I read, I read probably mainly Roald Dahl when I was that age and maybe Point Horror when I was a bit older. But um, yeah, I read a lot of I guess it's comedy poetry, but also made me think a lot. Like, please, Miss, please, Mrs. Butler. I remember mm, I was so shocked by these like negative poems about being a teacher because I just didn't. I guess like a lot of kids, you don't think about you know adults as being actual people. You think of them as being like your nurse or your teacher or your parent or whatever. And there was one which was just about this teacher being, like, so tired of kids misbehaving, which is Please, Mrs. Butler, and I loved it. And then there's another one, which I can't remember who it's by, about um someone not wanting to go to school, and at the end of the poem you find out that it's the headmaster that's complaining about not going to school. And, yeah, so those sort of poems blew my mind a bit. And then as a teenager, I did not read. Um, I read a lot, but I didn't read poetry. And I don't really know why, but I used to print off a lot of song lyrics and print them off and sort of go through them as if I had an essay to write on them, but I didn't. So I guess I moved from reading poetry to to sort of reading song lyrics a bit and trying to write my own poems around the same rhythm and stuff. Yeah, and then back to poetry in my 20s, I'd say. In between, what was the decision to study 
uh, French and German rather than English literature? Um, well, I did English literature at A-level, maths and English and um, French and German. And I felt like English wasn't very practical, I think. I sort of wanted to do something practical. And to be honest, I only applied... I went to Cambridge and I applied to Cambridge with French and German uh, because the school that I went to didn't really have people go into Oxford or Cambridge very often and so it was quite like yeah don't apply with anything else apply with this because you're most likely to get in if you apply with French and German so I love doing languages and I always wanted to do languages but I applied to like six unis and the other unis I applied to do like Spanish and law Chinese was my second choice so it was all languages but um but a lot of them with with law or something else but not English don't know. I really, I really loved doing English, but I felt like sometimes I, I sort of enjoyed books less because of studying them. And I remember after doing English literature A level, I couldn't really read a book without, you know, like lots of people say, without analysing it. And I didn't really want to do that. I sort of felt like sometimes it spoiled it a little bit, especially because I loved writing, and I just loved reading, and I wanted to carry on. Um, but I also, I also loved learning foreign languages. I felt like it was. I don't know, I feel a bit like a magician, to be honest, if I if I speak another language, even a sentence, and you sort of, I don't know, order something in another language and somebody passes you what you've just ordered. I still find it very exciting. And, and my dad will kill me for saying this, but also we went to France when I was just starting learning French. And I remember my dad just saying, oh, you just got to speak loudly in English and like point and just sort of shout in English. And I was so embarrassed in this place we went to. And I thought, oh, I so I don't want to go to other countries and be that, like, British person just expecting everyone to speak their language. I wanted to travel. I just really wanted to learn other languages. So, yeah, I think it was that. Do you think in terms of how your work is uh, perceived today, do you think that would be different if you'd studied poetry in a more formal capacity or done an English degree or do you think that's not a factor now? I have no idea I think about that quite a lot (laughs) quite a lot because I know that a lot of the criticism I get is from people who have often who've done like PhDs in poetry or at least like degrees in English literature or creative writing um and I I find it quite tricky when people sort of um ask you to give advice to people who are aspiring to be a writer because the first thing I always think of is that you should read like if you want to get better at poetry specifically like read poetry and I I find it tricky when I have students that are like oh I really like to write poetry and I I want to read out to people but don't really I don't really want to like read other people's it's like (laughs) that's not for me that's not really all right um so I'd say, yeah, I I always think, I feel like I've sort of trained on the job as such. And I don't like the idea that you couldn't be a writer without studying writing because I don't think that's true. But I also wouldn't want to say that I wouldn't be a better writer if I had studied because maybe I would and probably I would. But I also think I'm, I might have lost something in my writing like, I, I don't know, every time I have, like, a really critical piece written about my poetry, 
I always get that kind of insecurity, the fact that I haven't studied it and I don't know the different forms and, um, yeah, just all of that kind of insecurity, like academic poetry insecurity. But then I think I don't really want to mimic other poets. I don't, I don't want to write... I, w- I want to write better, but, yeah, I think it's a difficult one. I feel like there's a lot of poets who are published by professors that they studied alongside or studied under at uni. And there's this sort of loop of people study poetry, then write poetry, and then mentor another poet, and then they write. And I I quite like that I'm not in that kind of learned spiral. But I don't mean that I think the poetry's not as good or anything. I just, I quite like feeling a bit, a bit freer, I guess. But I feel like I've, well... I feel like I've read and studied in my own way as much poetry as someone that has done a, a degree focused on poetry, but I haven't had, you know, the mentoring and the professors. I've watched a lot of lectures, though, and I still feel like I'm learning. To return to the sort of chronology of your career, um, when were you able to go full-time with your writing? And would early success at slam events sort of managed alongside other work um what were you doing for for an income while you were making your way in the poetry scene um i was working for a architecture charity that was basically so i worked there for six years from leaving university so i worked while i was at university i did it part-time master's part-time but i worked in um clothes shop and a nightclub when I was doing that, so when I was starting out doing a few readings, and then when I left university, I was still doing poetry, but not not a lot, I guess. Um, just occasional sort of open mic nights, and I worked. I basically needed to get a job where I had accommodation with it, <laughs> so I worked as a warden in a language school, and then I got a job in a charity that I worked in for six years, which was basically it was about like town planning and how to combat things like violence but through urban design and town planning and it was also like the specific thing that I worked on was trying to get young people and kind of kids involved in town planning so they weren't missed out by property developers so I loved it (laughs) to be honest I loved the job I did it for six years and um I was like education officer I think when when I left but the the reason I went full-time into poetry by then I had a baby so I was working three days a week and the poetry was kind of taken over like I was getting offers to do workshops and also gigs and kind of some commissions and this sort of thing um so I guess it was getting to the similar-ish salary level as this job um and then when the conservative party got into government they like they they slashed the architecture centers that I worked for so they they just took out all the funding there was like a massive um it was called CABE and they slashed the funding for that which meant like all the architecture centers around the country would which just they were just closed so I got redundancy and had to decide whether to try and focus more on the poetry or look for a different job and um I also got five thousand pounds of arts council funding to try to try to um I guess this is a spoken word thing again but I'd written a lot of poems about parenthoods and 
pregnancy and parenthood and um I was told that the sort of next step is to do like a one person show for Edinburgh that kind of like making it into a theatre show so I got Arts Council funding to try to do that but it turned into a book because I'm really terrible <laughs> not really terrible but it just wasn't for me like the it was a went yeah turning it into a one person show that you were reciting and sort of I, I remember the producer just telling me to like walk and on the stage and we're sort of splitting the stage into this could be like pre-pregnancy and this could be after this and it's just not me the like acting and theatre world it's it's not really I don't yeah so even walking on stage I was pretty bad at so that turned into a book so it was yeah a mix of a mix of redundancy and, and arts council funding which allowed me to push and concentrate more time because otherwise I, I don't know if I could have having a kid that still didn't sleep and, <laughs> and having a, a part-time job. Could you tell us about papers in 2012 how how that came about and then what were the mechanics of it did you have an agent and things like that we always like on the show to get into the sort of you know nitty-gritty of how it all worked with with the publication. Yeah great so papers no I didn't have an agent and I guess if I could go back I'd probably do it a little bit differently but I was seen by the by the publishers on Latitude's New Voices stage so I was booked by a poet called Luke Wright to be part of the New Voices stage at Latitude and they saw me doing a set so it was part luck part hard work to get on the stage in the first place so yeah they saw me and asked if I would like to or had published any of my poetry in written form and I basically immediately said yes. So I didn't have an agent. Uh, and I said yes. And then published it with them. In some ways, I feel sometimes I'm a bit embarrassed that stuff that I've written long ago without an editor, without really it being looked at. So I guess because I hadn't had any professor of poetry guiding me along at all. It would be nice to edit those poems and I edit them now. Like if I read any poems from books, I'm always still editing the poems in books um, all the time. Even the most recent one, I'm still sort of cutting and pasting and changing words when I do readings. Um, but pff, I don't think there's any point in regretting it. So, yeah, that was um, that was published and I just sent the poems. I think I put them in alphabetical order wasn't sure about poetry collections and how to order poems and thinking about lots of things like that, which I've since learnt. So yeah, I was just very excited to be published and said yes to the first person who offered. <laughs> A message from our sponsor, Writing Magazine. If you've always wanted to write, but never known how to start, or if you've already got a book under your belt, Writing Magazine is just what you need to practice, develop and publish your written work. Filled with author profiles, tips from agents and advice from publishers, Writing Magazine is a great way to get you started, or back in the saddle, with writing of any genre. Discover how to beat writer's block, develop a character, write for children or choose a genre, it's all there in every issue. Writing Magazine have provided an exclusive discount for listeners of Always Take Notes. Download their digital magazine and try their introductory subscription offer at three issues for just £4.99, worth £18. You can claim this offer online and the link is in the show notes. As a subscriber, you also benefit from discounted entry into their monthly writing competitions, which is a great way to practice your skills and potentially win cash prizes and publication in their magazine. 
Offer ends 31st of January 2022. What's your writing process more generally? Um, I read that you said some poems I write scribbled and some I work on for months. How do you get the ideas and then when the idea is formed, how do you go about crafting it? And the ones that take months, what is the actual sort of bulk of the work that you're doing there? It's nice that you said that because I get quoted quite a lot just on the scribbles bit. People tend to, I think if they're kind of trying to sort of, I don't know, catch you out or be a bit derogatory, I, I get told quite often, oh, it's good, like, sort of held up sometimes as good and sometimes as bad that, oh, you don't really work on your poems very much, but that's really, it's really not true. Um, so sometimes I just, I don't, I don't, to be honest, I don't really know. Like, I've sort of tried to explain it a lot and sometimes I feel like I make up stuff just to, like, give an answer to this question because I'm not really sure. I just often think of things more as poems, I guess, in in thought and I don't know if that's because I've been writing my diaries in poems so it's just sort of I think of stuff more naturally in a poem or maybe it's just sort of like I feel like that's how you do it and I remember one of my friends saying no Holly like <laughs> most people don't but other people have something else don't they that they're constantly wanting to like take photographs of stuff or illustrate their ideas or or whatever so mine I guess has just been writing poems and Sometimes I think of sort of a whole, I'll think of like an image or the start of a poem and then sit down and try to write it or not sit down or pull over the car most often um, and sort of record stuff on a voice note. And other times I think of, I guess, like the idea. So it's not so much the poem, it's more the idea. I don't know if it's wanting to say something as much as wanting to work out what I want to think about something or what I am thinking about something and I find that the most often it's when I'm reading that I think of stuff so I find it quite hard to read a book of poems especially but also like non-fiction like after every sort of three pages is like inspiring you which I think is normal like the more the more I read the more inspired I get um so that tends to have sort of ideas for poems scribbled on a lot of other people's poetry books. And do you do you feel you have particular poets who influence your work? Is it right that you've got a, a framed Philip Larkin poem on your wall? <laughs> well, yeah, but only I bought that from my daughter's bedroom before she could read. So it's the one about parents um, <laughs> fucking you up. So that was for that, really. Um, have I got... I don't think I've got any other poems. Or I've got a lot of pictures on my walls. Uh, yeah, so I I have specific poets that I think I pick up to read before I edit. So I never, ever, ever sit down to write poems. I never sit down without an idea in my head to write. Um, and I don't have that much time like that. If I'm at home and my daughter's at school, I'm normally doing sort of admin, organising tours or editing. So I'll sit down to edit. Um, and I love it if I have a day that I'm just editing something. I really, that's probably my favourite thing to do is editing, just cutting and adding and trying to make things better. Thinking of titles for poems is maybe one of my favourite things. I normally leave all the titles till the end of a book and have sort of an evening with a glass of wine just to try and think of titles because I love it. Um, 
But yeah, if I if I'm editing, then I never start editing without reading at least four other poems by poets that I think are a lot better than me. So it's normally Andrew McMillan that I'll read, uh, Caroline Bird. I often pick up to read Jackie Kay. I often pick up so poets that I th- I think are doing things that I'm not or just challenge me to read their work. So I don't normally read poets that I think are quite similar to me. I read poets that are, are, are different, but that I enjoy a lot. Um, Liz Berry is another one who I think is incredible. And then I often, I've got the, the like Blood Axe anthologies, which I love, which my mum gave me when I was like 20, the first one. And I really like an anthology because it's, I think it's just, if I'm in a different mood, like with music, I guess I don't often feel like just listening to one band. I just want to hear lots of different songs sometimes. So I feel like an anthology gives gives me that. Kim and Donizio as well. I go to a lot. So yeah, I never yeah never start editing without reading something better <laughs> to learn from. Anthologies is the Spotify shuffle of. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It really is. It really is. It's perfect. That's a perfect description. Um, can we talk about uh, verses in twenty sixteen? Um, how that came about? Um, and explain to listeners who might not be aware of the project. You know what it is. Yeah, so Verses is basically, it's like a double CD and the first CD is just recordings of me reading the poems and the second CD is me reading the poems with various instrumentals put with them. I was going to say put in the background, but they're not in the background, they're put with them. So that was not my idea to do that. That was for about a year I had a manager so when I had a couple of videos um once once I lost my job um or took the redundancy from my job I went to try to maybe see if I could do full I wasn't working full-time anyway because I had a very young baby um so part-time but I made a schedule like a very rigorous schedule of like every Sunday I would submit a poem to something um every Thursday I would record one of the poems that I'd written and put it on YouTube because somebody at a gig who was a teacher asked me if I had anything online because they wanted to use one of the poems I'd written called mathematics with their class um so then I thought "Mm, that's a good idea so um I put one up for him first and then I said oh I'll do all these things weekly yeah so then I got um seen basically by a manager who manages music artists most of the time so it was through him that he thought that I should do an album with music for various reasons I guess because it could get you into a different more popular um more more popular sort of art form also in a practical way because if you've got music with your poems you get paid through PRS but there's there's not a scheme like that for poetry so I remember being told like even if there's a tiny bit of music with a poem and it gets played on the radio you you get paid um so in a practical way it was that but I I don't know if this is a well it's honest I'm, I'm not a massive fan of poetry with music I really just prefer poetry on its own so he wanted it to be an album of poetry and music. So the reason that it's a double CD is because I sort of get annoyed <laughs> listening to poetry with music. There's a few people, maybe Jill Scott. It's good. I don't really like much of it. Much of 
other stuff and I every time I hear a, a poet that's put stuff to music I just want to listen to it separately like, I just want to hear the poem I don't I, I don't know there's something about it it normally seems a bit more forced or I'm not sure I'm love the way it's read if it's trying to sort of keep along with the tune I just it's just not my thing um so I sort of pleaded and pushed for there to also be this CD that didn't have music with it. But I, I mean, I enjoyed doing it. And I thought, even if you don't love the idea, like what's, you know, what's the harm of just trying different stuff? And then he um, he pushed for it to be recorded at Abbey Road Studios because he was really excited about the idea of a poet being recorded there. So it was really through him. Um, and he was great. He's a, like, he's a great manager. It just wasn't wasn't really for me and I don't think a lot of the things that I guess sort of in the music world you push people into a bit I didn't I didn't want it I didn't want to wear different clothes or have like fancy photo shoots done or I think being uh, I was like young and a poet that was you know being seen on YouTube and there's this weird sort of like are you in this world or are you in this world sort of thing um so yeah, that was where it came from. And the recording at Abbey Road and I did a, a small gig at Abbey Road and that was just one of the loveliest things I've done. And I got to use the microphone that was apparently used for Lord of the Rings. So that was very, <laughs> that was very exciting. Could you tell us, um, just moving forward a bit about, about Nobody Told Me, about both, you know, the process of, of how you, you produced this, but also when it when it won the Ted Hughes Award, what that did for kind of your perception and maybe just use that to, to talk a little bit more about how your work has been perceived and, and how that has evolved over over your career. Yeah. So nobody told me, I guess it's different from a lot of the other poetry books that I've written and written since because it is less edited. Like the poems in it are less edited. Um, but it was the first, book that I had a, an actual editor for looking at the prose and everything and had people suggesting that was it was kind of entirely my agent's idea to publish the whole thing so I she again I got seen online so I like for all the, the social media um there's obviously a lot of horrific stuff to do with social media but for me I I don't know if I'd ever have been published without it I'm not really sure and I think sometimes people see that as a bad thing but I don't especially with nobody told me there was quite a lot of um negative reaction to it purely from marketing teams at publishing in in publishing companies so a lot of the time it sort of got through a lot of the editors really liked it and they sent it to the marketing teams but they didn't know how they'd market it so it didn't like fit into a slot of this can be in this section of a bookshop and especially first of all because it was about parenting second of all because there was poetry in it and poetry you know for all the articles written about how it's getting more popular it's still not <laughs> it's still not one of the most popular uh, literature forms uh and um, I remember being told quite often, oh, because it's a book about parenting, but really we only publish like parenting guides. So there's this idea that if you're going to read about parenting, you have to be a parent. And that's the only person that would read this. But it's not really a guide. It's just like a diary of parenting. And I know there's loads of books like that at the moment, but I don't there wasn't there wasn't it wasn't really a thing then. And then the addition of poetry, it was like, <laughs> I don't know, you don't know how to publish this. So um 
yeah, so it was an agent that saw me online and asked if I had an agent, if I wanted a literary agent. And then she she asked me to send her poems that I'd written about parenting. And I, I sent her basically most of the poems from Nobody Told Me, but a few of them still had the diary entries with them as an introduction. And then she asked me about them. And I said, oh, well, look, it's, it's all written as a diary. So then she asked me to send her the whole thing, basically, and said that she thought it would work much better if I just published everything. Um, so that was, yeah, that was quite a, a strange but lovely process. And then I guess the, the te- there was a lot of editing in terms of um, certain things, like most of it was written at the time that the diary gives, but there were, there were a few things, like one of the editors said, oh, there's a big block of like six months where you've not written anything, like do you remember anything from that time? So I think about three of the entries were written looking back but most of it was written at the time. And it was it was quite hard to know whether to edit a lot or not at all. And I guess because a lot of the poems were about, you know, sitting on the floor at 2am thinking about things, the idea of editing those poems seemed, for me, it, maybe it would have made them better poems, but I don't think it would have been quite so honest. There's a lot in that that I would now go through with like... <laughs> thick biro um, and score out or change or structure better but I think it is what it is and I'm quite proud of it like that and I guess the Ted Hughes award if anything it was it, I got pretty emotional obviously winning it um, but it was it was also about the fact that a book related to motherhood in particular had been given this like I guess literary credibility I think that was what I found so emotional because a lot of the time, even doing gigs, people would tell me, oh, this isn't a very sort of mothery audience or maybe more political poems are better here rather than the parenty ones. <laughs> and it was always deemed like not really, which I know has been throughout history, it's been the same with certain subject matters, especially often to do with um, women's domestic lives. So yeah, I think the Ted Hughes Award, it was amazing to get for many reasons, but for that reason, also Ted Hughes is like my mum's favourite poet. So she was very excited about that. Do you think that's why some critics have responded so virulently? I'm thinking in particular of the article in the PN Review. It's because you write about women's experiences and, and with that honesty and that you talk about that people sort of have a snobbery uh, about your work. Um... Not really. I think it's because I was published by Picador. Really, I think that's the only reason. So I think, um, I think it was the fact that like an established poetry press with a lot of credibility in the poetry world published a collection of poems by me. I don't think anyone really cared <laughs> before then whether or not they thought my poems were sort of good enough, um, whatever that means. I think it was because Picador published them and Picador is pi- is picky about poetry. So I think it was that. I think it um, annoyed, I, gu- I guess, I'm, I'm guessing this just from reading the articles, um, mainly that article and a few others that have been written. Yeah, I guess be- because it's not... 
It annoys me though, because I have studied a lot of poetry and I have worked really hard on it and I read and read and read and I know that's not the same as a university PhD on poetry. But there, there's this, I think there's a snobbery and there's a sort of, um, I think the reason that article annoyed me so much was because it made up a lot of stuff. Like it's, the criticism was fine, but then if I responded to it, it was often deemed that I just didn't want my poetry to be criticised, which is the opposite. I Like, it's really helpful <laughs> to be criticised because I've never had that. I've, I just, I really wanted feedback and having an editor and stuff was brilliant. Um, but yeah, it just sort of made up quite a lot of ideas about really, I guess really what I found quite weak arguments. Like there was this idea, because I'd put poems on YouTube, that you're a sort of, attention seeker that's all desperate to be famous so there was this kind of view um which I think is amazing and and you know the idea that if you're a a poet and you're sending 20 poems a week to publishers and magazines that you don't want to be a famous writer like it's it's pretty similar it's just different kind of outlets for your writing so I think that that divide was quite stark and there are a lot of kind of belittle belittling things like the idea of talking about insta poets is often used you know the minute it's like simon armitage is on instagram and i would love to be to see him on like a list of the top 10 insta poets his instagram's really good as well and jackie Kay and um i think the minute you use like a different outlet it seems to be picked up upon and you're sort of branded like a youtube poet as if people that put poems on youtube write in a certain way which is i think it's I think it's not, well, it's just not, it's not correct, really. So, yeah, it's it's difficult because I, I don't at all think that if you don't study something, <laughs> it's like you obviously get really good at stuff by studying it. Um, but poetry is a tricky one to talk about with that. I just thought that that article was kind of vile. <laughs> I really don't mind criticism, but it really... It was, and it was really angry. And one of the, I guess one of the things I found the most interesting was that I saw a lot of comments on Facebook because I was tagged in a lot of stuff. And I don't often read the comments, but it was kind of interesting (laughs) at the time that someone, you know, you write something and I worked really hard on the book, that someone like is so angry that you've got published and so like, like hates your work so much or hates the fact that other people like your stuff. Like it was, there was a lot of anger in the article and and I was sort of being held up I guess in the way that I said that a lot of people quote oh it's good that you don't edit your poems or you just write it down and that's it so I was sort of being held up as if I was sort of the spokesperson for people that like don't give a shit about writing which is pretty unfair but yeah other people on Facebook were sort of sharing it saying oh finally these slam poets or spoken word poets or insta poets or whatever are being held up to account and then I'd reply underneath and be like hi it's written about me I actually take a lot of care and one woman I remember replied and she ran like a literary magazine in New York and she said oh sorry I would never have said that if I am if I knew you could see it and then she put oh I haven't actually read any of your poems I was like well maybe we need to not jump on things like that if you haven't actually read somebody's work it was yeah it was it was sort of eye-opening and you know annoyed my family quite a lot upset my mum and my cousins <laughs> quite a lot more than I'd ever wanted why did you um 
respond in the way that you did with this, you know, on your website, kind of going through and annotating it and, and so forth? I mean, what was the, the decision behind, you know, kind of taking a public response to it? I think, so that again, I sort of wish I'd have thought through slightly more, but I think it was fine. Um, I felt like sometimes I don't really care. Like I get a lot of people being kind of mean, just in a silly way online, as you do on social media mainly. Um, but I just found the article so unfair and I was also quite embarrassed because I knew that it's quite a, well, a very well thought of magazine. And I felt like, to be honest, it felt like I was back in my first term of Cambridge University with lots of people laughing at me because I didn't know I don't know who Freud was or this sort of like, I don't know if it's intellectual snobbery, but I felt like I was being like guffawed at again. And I feel like I had that at Cambridge a lot and I didn't like it. And I I hate that sort of snobbery and I try not to be like an inverted snob. My mum's always telling me to not, you know, not, well, not do things the other way around. But I just... I just felt like there was also a lot of people reading it who love writing poetry or love reading poetry on Instagram or really like spoken word poetry or, or are writing their own stuff. And I felt like a little bit, if I didn't reply, it was like not sticking up for the art form or sticking up for myself. And I think I've been told quite often that that women often sort of belittle themselves much more or less confident people as well, but women especially... Um, and I thought, actually, you're at the age where you you should you should write something back. Um, and maybe it wasn't a good idea because I think the fact that I replied actually got more people reading <laughs> the article. And I did have some people sort of sticking up for me in ways that I didn't really like. But that always happens that people are like, oh, I'm on Holly's side. Yeah, I also love writing poetry and you don't have to really think about it that much. <laughs> and I was like, no, that's not what I'm saying. Um or people saying, oh, well, it's different because she's a spoken word poet or a slam poet. So she's not, you know, she's not intending it to be any good. There was that sort of, uh, that sort of uh, backup as well, which wasn't the most helpful. But yeah, I think, I think I was just done with people being able to just say whatever they wanted online and the fact that it was in this established um, magazine. And the fact it, it was also a, another female my age with quite a similar background to me who'd maybe been commissioned to do it. I think it was quite... Um, I don't know what the word is, quite weak from the man who's at the head of the PN review. It was quite sort of scaredy cat, to use a ridiculous word, to get a young female to write that article. Or maybe she, you know, asked to write it. But I feel like often we do that. Female writers are asked to write pieces about other writers because I guess <laughs> men are maybe too scared to do it themselves I'm not sure so that that was quite annoying in it um but the thing that I was most annoyed in the response I wrote I think quite a valid response like I, w I would like to you know think more about it now but I wrote one line one line that said something like if you think my poems are shit just say the shit like you don't have to hide behind all this other stuff and that was like, the most stupid thing I think I wrote in the whole article, like, the rest of it, I think, was quite clear and quite intelligent. But that line 
was then what was picked up by papers. So it was like, oh, Rebecca Watts said this and PN Review said this. And Holly replied, if you think my poems are shit, just say the shit. So they chose, like, again, newspapers chose, like, the least intellectual thing I said in that whole, in that whole response. And I thought, oh, why did I swear? Like, why did I write that one sentence? Because it was literally the only one that was quoted by all of them. Again, I think, to sort of make me look a bit stupid or choose the the most stupid thing I said in response uh so yeah but I mean it's not it's not the end of the world <laughs> if somebody writes an awful article about you it is a bit it's probably the worst thing about an author that you can yeah take a lot of time and sort of pull your hat out and work hard and then somebody can just just rip you apart but that's I guess it's what you've put yourself out for. We are coming up against our time limit, but a final question from me. It's a rule of the show that we ask every writer about money and how they've made it work. Um, so be as honest or as guarded as you like, but how is your income divided now between sort of book sales, readings, workshops, commercial work? Um, and how have you made it work over the kind of course of, of your career? So my income is mainly from touring, And then every so often there'll be like a voiceover, like I have done voiceover for OVO Energy, the uh, sustainable energy company. And I've done a few things like um, a voiceover for the Women's World Cup and I've uh, done a voiceover for the World Wildlife Fund um, and a few commissions. I try or tend to only do commissions on subjects or for companies that I would support anyway which I think as someone that's quite middle class and not from a poor background I can choose to do but if people don't then you know I wouldn't put that down I've definitely taken jobs like that that I maybe not so sure about now um but it's mainly touring so my yearly regular income is from touring and annoyingly I can only make that happen if I don't do many literature festivals and stuff because they have obviously set fees of £150 normally. Um, So I do the ones that I can, because I definitely don't make a living from book sales. Um, Advances I get now, so I didn't get an advance for the first four books, and then I got a £5,000 advance for my fourth book, and then a £20,000 advance for my latest book. Um, but that's obviously an advance which is then taken out of book sales so I don't think of that as like that's not really real money because that goes away um, again so yeah it's touring and, and it's only because I organise all the tours myself so I had a tour manager for a year but I, d- I don't really need it and it's hard as a parent to you know for them to know when your kid's got football match and stuff so I book theatres directly through the theatre and it's a 70% split um versus a 500 pound guarantee is like my basic rate so it it just all goes on ticket sales so I, i guess i'm employed by anyone that comes to see me at a gig and buys a book book royalties are one thing but touring is definitely like the the bread and butter well, look, Holly, we're right up against our time limit, but thank you for being a fantastic guest on Always Take Notes for speaking so graciously about a range of topics and wishing you all the best with your various projects going forward. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Lovely to chat to you. That was the Always Take Notes interview with Holly McNish.
She's on Twitter at Holly Poetry. Her website is hollypoetry.com and her latest book is Slug, which is published by Little Brown. We wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches. If you pledge $10 a month, you get a free two-month trial to Otter, worth $26, alongside the other rewards. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help when organising interview material. You also get access to a series of mini-episodes from previous guests on the show, in which they answer three revealing questions. The latest episode features Alex Wade, and here's a snippet. A piece of advice I wish I'd had at the beginning of my career was to follow my passion. My passion was for writing and literature, and if I had managed to follow it rather more uh, seriously, perhaps in my 20s, possibly I wouldn't have imploded quite as much as I did in my early 30s. A time I failed in my writing career and what I learned from it, a very good memory of it. Hello, it's us again. Rachel, what was your takeaway from the interview with Holly? I thought Holly was a witty guest. I really enjoyed chatting to her. Um, I think I was most impressed listening to how she navigates the criticism about her work, and which often spills into sort of personal attacks. If any listeners have not read her riposte to the PN Review article that we mentioned, it's definitely worth checking out. I was quite taken in by by her um, argument in that. How about you? Uh, I enjoyed having a guest with whom I had some geographical connection, Rachel, after after the um, <laughs> the endless Manchester discussions. So that was good. And um, yeah, I enjoyed it as well. I think that you know she um, she talked very, as you say, thoughtfully about how she's walked the line with that one, which clearly has not been easy. Um, and I was also interested in in how she talked about how it worked financially and in how she has 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 had to eschew literary festivals because the performance fees there are capped and. Ultimately, it's just not really economical for her, which was interesting and I thought was was also quite telling. But really good to have her on the show. We have been trying to get her on for a long time, so it was excellent. We're treading the line between keen pursuers and harassers probably at this point. That's, that's, that's always our, our line on Always Take Notes. Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikham. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our score is by Jess Danheiser. Our graphic design is by James Edgar. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we're on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes. On Twitter at Take Notes Always. Our crowdfunding page on Patreon is under Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us via our website, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.